and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Let's see your Bibles if you got them. You know, when the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, they are transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. And I'll tell you what, we're going to turn to 3 John. That's where we're going to be. Our message is living for the truth. But you know, I, I thought with these verses that we have here in 3 John, I would bring in some expert readers uh, to read this passage for us. And so if the Rouse family could come up here now and... Uh, They are going to read verses 1 through 4 for us. All right. All right. When you're ready, girls and boy. Beloved, to the beloved bias, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brother... Brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are, are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Amen. Good job, you guys. Thank y'all so much. Hallie and Isla and Liam, thank you guys so much. That is wonderful. Uh, Woo! Great way to start the sermon time, huh? And so thankful for kids in the Word and this precious passage that we're about to walk through. And uh, I want to show you a little video here. And uh, it takes a couple minutes to watch, but I'm going to talk us through it as it's happening. So this is the Nebraska State Cheerleading Competition. And that is Katrina Kohel. I don't know if you heard about, heard about her in the last month, but you can see that she's up there and she's cheering alone. Her high school is Morrill High School in Nebraska. Now, she's part of a cheerleading team, but as the competition was approaching... One by one, her fellow cheerleaders quit the squad for personal reasons, and perhaps those personal reasons for the last one or two to quit was embarrassment at being such a small team. And, you know, would you get up there and cheer alone? That would be embarrassing. Would you be among just a couple cheering? Uh, That could really be something that gives you a sense of shame. But Katrina wouldn't let it go. She was resolute that her school needed to be represented. And so she and her coach, she reworked the routine So Morrill High School would be represented that day. And she, for her high school, her high school finished eighth out of 12 schools in the competition, which was their highest finish in years. 
I think that Katrina understood something. She understood that it's not about her. Her school deserved to be cheered for. It deserved to be represented. And so there she is with every eye on her. If she messes up, everybody's going to see it. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. But she says Morrill High School deserves to be cheered for. And so there she is, standing alone, cheering for the one that she represented. Boy, didn't that take guts? Out there all alone, all eyes on you. Some people must have been thinking she was crazy. But she was not alone. As she cheered for her school, she happened to come through at a time that it was hard to be a cheerleader. Their numbers were few. But many cheerleaders had gone before her at Morrill High School. They had cheered for their teams. They had cheered for their school. And in her day, it was just her. But there she was and there she is. Those ones that had gone before were kind of like a cloud of witnesses for her in that moment, like Hebrews 12 talks about. Those who had finished their own time at the school and cheered her on as she did that. And there was also a lot of little cheerleaders out there that would one day possibly be in the Morrill High School system and would get to be cheerleaders for Morrill High School. You know she's going to inspire others to come after her and wear that uniform and cheer so that Morrill High School is represented in the competitions and the, and the teams are cheered for as they play out on the fields and the courts and all those different things. Near as I can tell, she did everything she was supposed to do right. And so good for her, Katrina Cattell. She's not here today, of course, but let's give her a round of applause. And that's enough, Ronnie. You can fade it out there and bring the lights back up a little bit. How many of you understand that at the end there, I wasn't talking about cheerleading anymore? I'm talking about the privilege that we have to represent Jesus Christ and his blood-bought church in the midst of a wicked generation where far too many say, nope, not for me. Don't want anything to do with Jesus. Don't want anything to do with the church. That's a relic of the past. It's not timeless truth. Don't like you guys. Don't appreciate you guys. Don't appreciate the things that you talk about and the ways you live. And we think you're crazy for thinking that that guy, that Jesus is alive and real and should be followed. You know, three weeks ago, we talked about Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey. And we mentioned that he rode in on a donkey. Donkeys are beasts of burden. They're work animals. And he did that because there was work to be done. The Bible tells us later he's going to come back on a white horse as the conquering king, just like Roman generals did, and rule and reign on earth. But it wasn't time for the white horse yet. It was the beast of burden, the donkey. And we celebrate the fact that he did that, that he rode into Jerusalem and wept over the city, wept for people to know him by faith. And then two weeks ago, we talked about what Christ did for believers in his death and resurrection. His death was as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But God honored that death, that sacrifice, by raising him from the dead. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, now he's the perfect high priest and can apply the perfect sacrifice of his blood. The Bible says he ever lives in heaven to make intercession for us. And so every time someone turns to Christ for forgiveness, the blood is applied and the high priest applies the blood that he himself had shed uh, for the forgiveness of sinners. You know, he's at the cross was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The book of Revelation says that one day he'll return as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the rightful judge of the earth that all people must uh, bow to in heaven on earth and under the earth. 
You want to know him as the lamb, not the lion. Amen? You want to know him as the one that died for your sins. And last week we talked about what happened a week later. This was 1990 years ago this week. We talked about how doubting Thomas had not seen the risen Lord. He just wanted to see what the others had seen. And he got to do that. Jesus came to him. And Thomas was so amazed to see Jesus alive, really alive, that he exclaimed, my Lord and my God. He gave one of the best professions of faith in all of the Bible. But then we saw Jesus say to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And that includes all those that even by the pages of the New Testament, when it ended, all those who had believed based on the witness of others and the, how Christ had fulfilled the prophecies and how these changed lives were before them. And it continued on to the first and second century with the martyrs, all those that were willing to testify to their faith through death. It continued on all the way up and through, and now it's us. And the moment you believe, you are blessed, the Bible says, for being among the believers. So today I thought... And the backdrop of this for those that are with us today is, and visiting is in June, I'm going to enter into a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. So right now we're just doing some things kind of following the first death and resurrection and then we'll do a Pentecost message and some of these things in between. But I wanted to talk today about what living for the truth looks like for Christ followers in its most basic sense from this very small and short third letter of John the beloved John, John the Apostle. This is the same one that wrote the Revelation, but also the beloved disciple from the Gospel of John. When you add together John's Gospel and first and second and third John and Revelation's chapters, he wrote exactly 50 chapters of the Bible, so that's pretty neat. And more than any other apostle, he spoke about love. He had internalized the love of the Lord for him. He couldn't believe that as a sinner, Jesus had loved him. And he wanted to share that love with others. And here he is. When this is written, it's probably the 90s AD. All the books of the New Testament were done by 100 AD. And this is one of the very last ones. And in there, a John who himself is probably 80 or 90 years old at this point. He's no longer a spring chicken. He's older. He's still talking about love and truth which is uh, what he lived to do as we read the other words that he wrote. So we're going to our dear mentor, John. At this point, probably all the other apostles have died. And in three points, we're going to look at what living in truth looks like, what living for the truth looks like. So the first thing's there in verse 1. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, who I love in truth, those who live in truth love in truth. John says about Gaius that he loves him in truth. In verse 1, John calls himself the elder, and that was doubly true. Uh, we've already talked about how old he was, so he's an older, and that's the root base of what it means to be an elder, a more mature person, uh, one who is more mature in the faith. He's the older and he's the elder. He's the incredibly mature leader of the church. And the church needs the wisdom of its godly olders, doesn't it? So thankful for the Tabernacle family and so many seasoned senior saints to look at and learn from. And so thankful for those that have gone before. Charles Stanley we talked about earlier. You know, one thing I appreciate about pastors that have gone before like Charles Stanley and David Jeremiah, um, I'll tell you what, they never did anything that made my job as a local church pastor more difficult. 
They got up and preached the word. They led their churches to do missional things. And as I come up and preach the word and lead our church to do missional things, uh, it, it is so great to know we're standing uh, on the shoulders of giants going all the way back to the first century, all the way back to the older, the elder, John, the brother of James, the friend of Jesus who loved him so much. You know, there's a lot of too cool for school preachers of all ages. And frankly, they do things that look cutting edge to some, but really are making it very difficult for others to stick with the faith once for all delivered to saints. And so we'll stick with the faith once for all delivered to saints. Amen. And sometimes these novelties and these guys, you've got to watch carefully to make sure they're really teaching from the word because many of them are making it about themselves rather than Jesus and the word of God. The elder John writes to his beloved friend Gaius. That's a fairly common name. It's at least three times in the New Testament. A couple of traveling companions of Paul and then the mention of it here. Uh, we're not exactly sure exactly which one this Gaius was, uh, but uh, he was a friend of John. And John writes to his beloved friend and says, I love you in truth. So the love that Jesus had for John that had overflowed to John was now overflowing to people like Gaius there. And we're not going to get in, into it today, but from verse 9, we learn that John was going to call Gaius to confront a selfish churchgoer named Diotrephes, who was derailing some of the church's work by putting what he wanted ahead of gospel interests. And I don't have anybody in mind at the tabernacle as I read this. I just know that when you're in church, sometimes people get uh, proud and in the flesh and they think they know what should happen uh, in a church. And even when godly leaders uh, are trying to lead out in different ways, they say, no, nope, we ought to do it this other way. And many times I've seen it's just because they weren't asked first. Uh, and there's a bit of pride and lack of humility there that makes them want to reject uh, good and godly things happening in the life of the church. And so... John is writing to his friend Gaius, and one of the things he has to do is say, listen, there's this guy, Diotrephes, there. I'm trying to send you a speaker or two that you really ought to have there, and he's not letting it happen because we didn't ask him first, you know. And he loves to, look what it says in verse 9 there. He likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge John's authority. He likes to put himself first. Gosh, that's just a hard thing in families. It's a hard thing in church families when you love to put yourself first rather than saying this is all about God, not about me. Uh, it's what he wants to have happen here. We want to look to see what, where he's at work and join him in what he's doing so we don't found, find ourselves fighting against God the Holy Spirit. So John writes to Gaius there. Now, it reminds me of the time that Jesus had rebuked John uh, because once upon a time, he too had been a selfish disciple. Do you remember that? His mama had come to Jesus and said, hey, how about my boys, John and James here? And they were like, yeah, how about us, you know? Jesus, when you rule physically, won't you give us some of the choicest positions there are? And Jesus basically said, do you know what that'll involve? That'll involve your death, basically. You'll have to take up your cross like I'm taking up mine. And they couldn't fully understand that. But here we are decades later now, and John has gotten the message. It's all about Jesus. And so Jesus had helped him get back on track when he was selfish, and uh, he wanted Gaius to help this man as well in the church there. Now, nobody ever modeled loving and truth for us better than Jesus. Amen? I think about John 1.14. What does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus, who was the Word, the eternal God, who became flesh, John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw the glory of God the Father, 
And we saw, you know, uh, John 1.14 says that he was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now, with Jesus, it was never 50% love and grace and 50% truth. It was never 50% of one and 50% of the other. There was 100% of both, right? So there was never anybody more loving than Jesus, more grace-filled than Jesus. There was never, never anybody more truthful than Jesus. And they seamlessly went together in this perfect life and the way he modeled for us uh, living in spirit and in truth. And in fact, in John 4, 24, that's what he said about true worshipers, wasn't it? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You know what the problem with the world today is? The church today, I should say. There are some people that worship in spirit without truth, the spirit of Christ without truth, and there are others who worship in truth. They get all the things right, but they don't have a loving spirit. They don't put them together. Jesus was full of grace and truth, and then he called us to be those who worship him in spirit and in truth. We worship him in spirit and truth. We witness in spirit and truth. We walk in spirit and in truth. And when we acknowledge the truth but don't have a loving spirit, we become religious legalists who don't love people as Jesus loved them. And there's plenty of examples of that in the world. But when we try to have a loving spirit without obeying Jesus' clear commands that are in the Scripture, we wind up being overcome by loose, sinful living. And our faith gives way to practicing and endorsing the idols of the age and the place that we live. And there's all kinds of idolatry in the body of Christ around the world. So it's 100% of both, worshiping in spirit and in truth, living by the truth, but living in the loving spirit as well. And that's kind of what Paul has in mind in Ephesians when he calls believers. When we speak the truth to do what? To speak the truth in love, right? They seamlessly go together. So living in truth means loving in truth. And then we read that those who live in truth pray in truth. Verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I love verse 2. He, he gives us this prayer. He, he says, I know you're prospering spiritually, Gaius. I, I pray that you're prospering physically as well. And this is a reminder that we are called to pray for the whole person. Each person is a total person. Uh, and we're called to pray for the whole person that as they follow Jesus, they will flourish that they'll flourish. You know, it does not adorn the witness to a watching world when we talk about, yes, we're excited about going to heaven one day, but don't seek to live out the abundant life he has for us now uh, and model that love to others. Having gained eternal life through faith in Jesus, we want to have abundant life by following Jesus' commands, and that's praying in truth for people. Now, when I think about a guide verse to pray for the whole person, I want to give you one today, and that is uh, Luke 10, 27, Luke 10, 27. And you may want to turn there so you can underline it or star it or underline different things about it, Luke 10, 27. Some of you will already recognize that this is one of the places where Jesus goes into what the greatest command is. And we've put it up here for you, but you might want to transfer that to your own Bible there or highlight it in your Bible app if you're using a Bible app. And there Jesus says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So there's five things he says there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I love how this goes along with so much that is being talked about today in these days of anxiety, these days of physical problems, these days of violence, these days of lacking forgiveness toward others who have hurt you, all those different things. These days, we hear a lot about emotional health, don't we? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. So you pray for people's emotional health. We hear a lot about spiritual health these days. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your soul. We hear a lot about physical health. And Jesus said, love God with all your strength. You pray for people's physical health to go along with their spiritual health and their uh, emotional health. Paul called the body of Christians temples of the Holy Spirit. That you don't just go to a church to be where God's at work. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God has resides in heaven he also resides in your heart somehow through his spirit indwelling you so this is a holy place it's a temple set apart for the lord we pray for people's physical health we hear a lot about mental health jesus said love the lord your god with all your mind the things you think about and uh, man if we can correct wrong thinking about things for people with the truth of god's word that'll help them so much we hear a lot about relational health jesus said love your neighbor as what as yourself well, that's easy, Dan. I don't need to love my neighbor because I don't really love myself, you know. But yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You're looking out for number one. And Jesus is constantly challenging you to humble yourself before him. Realize if you're a Christian now, your identity in Christ, that you've been accepted, you've been forgiven. His spirit's inside of you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He has a purpose and plan for your life. And so as you grow in Christ, you develop such Christ esteem that low self-esteem from the past doesn't matter as much anymore. I've told you this about me. Uh, I'm not a big math guy. I'm pretty bad at it. And science. Elizabeth's good at math and science, those things. But I'm not very good at those things. But early on, I learned to do gospel math. Hey, Rachel, I learned to do gospel math. That's a joke from this weekend. But anyway. Um, so, gospel math. Danny Campbell was a zero before Christ saved him. Jesus Christ is a perfect 10. When I became a Christian, Christ came into my heart and life, forgave me my sins. I became a temple of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, Danny Campbell is what? A zero or 10 now? I'm a 10 now, right? And that's the identity I walk through life with. Every once in a while that has appeared to some as, as being overconfident or whatever, but I, I promise you, I don't really have a lot of confidence in myself. Uh, you, you know, I never eat before I preach on Sunday morning because I'm just afraid to throw up, you know, <laughs> um, and those things. Uh, I, I want to get this right for the Lord, and I want him to speak through me. I want to get out of the way and God things happen and stuff. So I'm a 10 in Christ, but I can do the math, right? If you could take Christ back out of my life somehow, thank God we read the scriptures and understand that once he's there, he's there forever. But if you could somehow take Christ away from Danny Campbell, what would you have all over again? Zero. Don't you ever forget that math. Because you don't need to walk through life with a low self-esteem. Christ created you, and he died on the cross to redeem you from your sins. You're doubly valuable in his eyes. But it's more a point of who he is and that's where we deflect the glory to. It's not about us, right? So you pray for the person as a whole person. Now, let me preach uh, 
so I, I do believe the spiritual health and peace with God that we have as believers, they're the engine that drives all the other health. And if you have everything else, good health, and you got a fairly good brain and all those other things, but you don't have Christ, you're missing the engine that's supposed to power your life toward living a life that glorifies God. You need Christ in your heart. You need Christ in your life. Now, let me preach to you what others uh, are preaching to me right now, right? As an act of faith in Jesus... Take specific steps to address the improvement of whatever it is. Your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, your relational health. If you have that peace with God, you've got new life in him. But there are some things that you need to address among your physical health. Do it for the glory of God. The same thing for your emotional health and your, your mental health and your relational health. Forgiveness is a big part of that. Let's pray for one another as some of us get serious about health issues and things like that. Let's pray for one another as we take courageous steps and go to counseling if we need to as individuals and couples. Or to finally forgive, be forgiven, and reestablish some relationships in our lives. Now let me share you with, with you a quote. And you need to understand how I think. Sometimes I see a quote and I know there's no way the person said that. I'm going to share with you the quote anyway and who it's attributed to because the quote is so good that even if Abraham Lincoln didn't said this, it's a good quote. But I don't think he said it. Um, the quote is this, for real change to happen, we must choose what we want most over what we want now. Sounds like somebody's put together in the last 20 years, not 1860, that's why I say that. But for real change to happen, we must choose what we want most over what we want now. And I need to tell you guys this. That quote has wrecked me in the last two weeks. It has just been a, you know, you go out to the old uh, school field mill site there and you see the wrecking balls just torn it all down, right? That quote's been a wrecking ball like that for me these last couple weeks. It just wrecked me. It's just been pounded on me for two straight weeks. And I almost brought a box of my beloved Swiss cake rolls up here to show you, you know? <laughs> Uh, because what I want most now is another Swiss cake roll. What I want most is good health. So I can minister as long as God wants me to minister. That's not the only way it's wrecked me in the last couple of weeks. Now some of you are here and you haven't turned to Christ yet. And some of you have been in sermons like this and, and what's going on in your heart and life, you go, yeah, yeah, I really want to live forever and, and I want to turn to Christ in faith. But there's so many things I still want to do so. And I, I don't know if I want to, I don't want, if, I want him to get the glory. I want to get the glory for my life. And what's happening is what you want most, at least you're saying it is, to live forever with God. But what you want most now is to keep going on in pride. And your pride will... Uh, be the one consistent thing about most people in hell will be pride. C.S. Lewis had this amazing quote. He said, there's only two kinds of people in the end. There are those that say, God, your will be done. And those to whom God will say, we'll have it your way then. I did everything it took on the cross to get you to heaven, but you're too proud. You have no intention of living under my lordship, so you won't turn to me as savior. And your pride is what you want now. And somewhere inside, what you want most is to live forever, but you want really now to go on living for yourself. What do you want most, Christian? Is it to finish life having glorified God and having borne much fruit? 
Many of you would say that, but some of you won't get it because what you want most now fills your calendar with you-centered priorities rather than what you know God wants you to do. And so you say what you want most is to look back on the life at the end of life and having lived a life that pleases God and borne much fruit for him, but it doesn't show up in your calendar now. It doesn't show up in your uh, financial decisions now. It doesn't show up in other decisions that you make. What shows up is a lot of what looks like you are in charge of your life. You are the Lord of your life. What do you want most? Is it physical health? You and I won't get it if we keep shoveling the same food that we always have shoveled in and don't exercise. For some of you, it means wanting health enough to stop smoking, to stop drinking, to stop doing drugs. Whatever kind of drugs it is, your drug of choice. What do you want most? Emotional, mental, financial, relational health? Any of those? Some of you won't get it if you keep dealing with your emotional pain and stress by wanting now to turn to the addiction of your choice, pornography, substance abuse, gambling, whatever it is. And unfortunately, way too many times in the past, tabernacle members have been both reluctant enough and uptight enough that many have kept their struggle to themselves. And they just keep choosing now versus choosing most because part of choosing most is using the resources that you have, all of them. That's just not just Bible study and prayer. It's brothers and sisters in Christ who will walk through this life with you and will help you get to the other side when you bring that which is in darkness into the light. I believe, though, that God's doing some things here at the tabernacle. I believe we are well poised now to start to do what James says in James' little book, the book of James, where he says, get together with one another and confess to one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. I think it's already started. I think if you put the old spiritual uh, dipstick into the thing right now and pulled it out, I, I think that uh, it's not on empty as it's been other times in the life of our fellowship. I believe people are wanting it. They're wanting real life in Christ. They're wanting real transparent relationships. They're wanting the kind of brokenness and vulnerability that will mean living a full abundant life rather than living a life that's full of baloney. But you gotta want what you want most and choose it over what you want now to go ahead and feed uh, the, the addictions that you have. It has to start with wanting what we want most over what we want now. And that leads to the final point. There's uh, to, to live in the truth, you gotta love in the truth, you gotta pray in the truth, you gotta make choices in the truth, but this one is those who live in truth walk in truth. So we're already going into the next one in verses three and four where it says, John says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Oh, kids, you did such a great job reading that passage. That verse four. Eddie mentioned how much he likes it. I love it too. It's one of the first ones I memorized. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now that's certainly true for every godly parent whose children have decided to follow Jesus, isn't it? And for those of us with prodigals far from the faith, the thing we hope and pray to be able to say one day that my child's walking in the truth. They finally get it. 
Just like the Lord impressed it on me, it's been impressed on them. Oh, I'm so happy. But John writes it here as a Christian delighted to hear of his fellow Christians walking in the truth. And as a 90-something-year-old about at that time, he can say it. Listen, when you get to 90, you're allowed to say anything you want. He's about 90 years old here, and everyone is a kid to him. And so he's calling them all kids, like he did in 1 John. I write to you, little children. He's writing to some 60-year-olds and calling them little children. They're all kids to him. I have no greater joy than seeing my kids walking in the truth. Let me say something to the church today. If you're here and you're 90 years old or older, I give you permission to treat myself and everyone here like a kid. But I do have something to say to everyone else here under 90 especially those between about the age of 50 and 89. Let me ask you to stop treating the young adults who have stayed in the church like children. They are no longer the youth that you saw do stupid things years ago. And it was years ago now. I can think of dozens of our 20-somethings, 30-somethings, and 40-somethings. If they left our church now and went to another church, they would be welcomed like conquering kings and be put into much ministry service all around the church doing all kinds of things. They just would. We still treat them like kids. We need to stop it. We're going to lose them if we don't change the ways we think and move over enough to let them help lead us going forward. It's just reality. We're a team. We're an intergenerational team. Don't say that guy can't do that, that girl can't do that because she's a kid. No, she's 30 now. She's 40 now. <laughs> do treat them as those who are seeking to love in truth, pray in truth, and walk in truth. Now, as part of walking in truth, I want to bring this home with talking about the levels of motivation to serve God because this will help everybody here. So, in the Bible, there's at least seven different motivations given to serve God. And I've listed them there for you in your notes. We're not going to go from top to bottom. We're going to fill them in from bottom to top because they lay out like that, like foundations, right? The very base motivation to serve God the Scripture gives is the fear of God. So, the F at the bottom, the word is fear that you want to put down there, the fear of God. I don't know that we're going to put them up there until they're all up there, but, uh, or maybe we won't, but you see, you have to write this in. You've got to remember this. I'll help you remember it. Everybody here should be able to remember this when they go out. The fear of God. Someone who fears God knows that God's God and they're not. God's God and we're snot. Uh, we're not. Okay. Um, they know he's the creator. We're the created, right? And so... We, we, a person that fears God knows he'd be right to judge us and uh, there's an awe and respect of him and for those disobeying him that don't plan to walk with him there ought to be a certain amount of terror right because he's God and we're not fear of God there it is the second one is the word obligation so the creator is also the lawgiver, the one that gave Moses the Ten Commands and says those Ten Commands are written on the hearts of people, that you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, etc., all those different things. So there's a sense of obligation we have to the lawgiver, the governor, to be the governed ones. So we're not just the created ones, we're the governed ones. We have an obligation to do what he says. And the Bible makes very clear there will come a day where we'll give an account for every thought we've thunk, word we've spoken, and deed we've done. 
For believers, it won't be about punishment anymore. It'll be about for reward. But when the final judgment is given for non-believers, it says basically the lake of fire will be as bad as the sinful choices and decisions and thoughts made that didn't glorify God. There's a glory deficit between us and God. We've got an obligation to do what he says. He's the lawgiver. We're the ones governed. Then there's guilt as a lower obligation. These first three are all lower obligations as the scripture presents them. And guilt. What is guilt? Well, guilt is you do sin and you know it was wrong and God beats you up about it. And that can be a very helpful thing. Um, if it gets you back on the straight and narrow, right? You have guilt. I, I remember after I became a Christian, two weeks afterwards, uh, I went to a party and I got drunk. It was the first time I drank since I had become a believer. And when I was baptized that night, I, I was the Sunday night after the Saturday night party, and I, I was hung over. And I had never felt guilt before about stuff like that, but it wrecked me then. And, and that carried me to today of being a teetotaler, basically, you know. Guilt can be a good thing. Um, but those are all lower motivations as the scripture presents them. Now, most people think that gratitude is the highest motivation. You're so grateful for what Christ did for you on the cross. And it is the hinge one. It is the one that goes from the lower to the higher, but it's right there in the middle. When you're reading in the New Testament, it talks about the higher motivations to serve God. It always goes back to faith, hope, love, and we're going to get to those in a second. But gratitude is critical. We are grateful for what Christ did for us, aren't we? We're so thankful for what he did for us on the cross. But if we're not careful, we can make it all about the past. In other words, I'm 55 years old now. I became a Christian when I was 17. And I'm very grateful for what he did for me then that has secured for me eternal life. I'll be eternally grateful. But if we're not careful, if it's all that focus and not today, what happens is we uh, kind of uh, get a little resentful. Well, I could go out and party with you guys now, but I'm a Christian and I'm so grateful to the Lord. It can become kind of a debtor's ethic. Have you ever watched White Christmas with Bing Crosby in it and stuff like that and Danny Kaye? Remember the early scene, Danny Kaye saves his life, pushes him out of the way, and the building comes on Danny Kaye's arm. And Bing Crosby is so grateful that he makes him part of his team act, right? They get in a group together and start singing together. And uh, that's great that first day. It's great the first week. It's great a month later. But about 15 years later, they show Danny Kaye still using the arm thing and... Uh, and, and to try to guilt and, uh, uh, Bing Crosby into doing something now. And Bing says, no, no, I really am grateful for that. But you, bet, you need to be careful that it's not a debtor ethic. That's why in the New Testament, it goes beyond gratitude, which is right there in the middle, the hinge of the two sides, the lower, the lower and the higher, to faith, hope, and love. What does faith say? You know what faith says? And for some of you, this is going to be transformative right now. You're never going to get over what I'm about to say. Faith says this. The same God who saved me back at the cross is present in my life now. He's left me the Holy Spirit, and I'm anticipating him to do something today by faith in him because I've got a present and future faith. But right now, right now, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is active in my life today as I face these wearisome burdens and circumstances of life that are hard to face. Amen. By faith, by faith. The next one is hope, and hope is the assurance of things, the faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What hope does is, it's not, I hope my team will win and then they don't. Hope in the Bible is more of the word certainty, right? So 
hope is like the Bible verse that says, I know whom I have believed it and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Hope says, as I walk by faith in this life, I'm now making investments in the kingdom work that God will, God will give me reward for later on in heaven. And so as we go through a week, we're looking to do that which God can reward and promises to reward later on. Faith, hope, and of course the highest is love, amen? The love of Christ for us, our love overflowing to others. Uh, love is at the very top, motivation to serve God. Now, it doesn't mean that fear, obligation, and guilt stop being important. Uh, if uh, a sense of obligation keeps you from cheating on your wife, you've done the right thing. But if that's all that's happening every day, then you need to question your own motivations and say, God, I want to work right up through this so I have a, a love for my wife. As you love the church, I want to love my wife, you know. And so this is a basis you can use to constantly question yourself and go through things like that. So those who live in truth, love in truth. And they've been doing it all the way since the early church. Those who live, love, live for truth, they pray in truth. And those who live for truth, walk in truth. And I wanted to show you one example of that before we pray. Turn to the back of your notes if you have the notes there with you. The letter to Dionysius was wrote, written in the second century. In the second century. So this is less than 100 years uh, after John died. A letter was written to try to explain to others what this faith is all about. And these are such profound words. And I hope you see in them some of the, your own call to represent the Lord in this life of faith. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men nor do they like some proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each one has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. Did you hear that? They follow the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of the ordinary conduct. It's not the way they uh, dress and eat and those different things that really separates them apart from others. It's something different than that. It's this faith, hope, love, life that they live. They display to us their wonderfully and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries like America, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure as all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country. They're trying to make the best of each country they live in. But every land of their birth is also a land of strangers because they are citizens of a heavenly country. They marry as do all others but, and they beget children but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table but not a common bed. They're not known for abortion and adultery and those type things. They're in the flesh, but they not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. 
They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, but they bless. They are insulted, they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body, and Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. Mm. Powerful words indeed. Those early Christians, what did they do? They followed the risen Lord and acted like him. They modeled him. They, uh, when Paul later said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that just kept on going. And that's what we say today. May your walk with Christ be strong enough that people will say, I want to imitate Jacob. Uh, imitate Danny as Danny follows Christ. Imitate Jacob as he follows Christ. Imitate Robin as she follows Christ. They loved in truth, they prayed in truth, they walked in truth, and let's do the same in our generation for a world desperately in need of the love of the Savior, amen? Let's do that even if sometimes we are like Katrina Cohell cheering alone, vulnerably on display for the world to see and either embrace our faith or mock at us. Let the mockers mock. Our faith is real, our Christ is lovely, and he wants to save. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts, as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.